This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. My special guest tonight on Bent Notes is an American jazz guitarist who developed his own playing technique in part to emulate what he had been used to hearing when he had previously played classical piano. It is my great pleasure to bid a very warm Bent Notes welcome to Stanley Jordan. Welcome, Stanley. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I understand that you started your musical life by learning classical piano. How young were you when you started, and what was the instigator of that piano learning? So I started taking lessons when I was seven, and before that I was playing just sort of experimentally and intuitively. I remember playing as early as age five. My sister tells me I was playing when I was three, which I don't specifically remember. (laughs) I was always interested in a lot of different things. And um, my mother had a lot of books and she gave me permission to make cartoons in the margins of the books. You know how you can flip the page and the different picture on, on each page. And so I used to make these epic cartoons. I had a main character named Griffy Grasshooper. And I realized that Griffy needed a song. So the first song I ever wrote was Griffy Grasshooper's theme. Oh, wonderful. So it was actually, yeah, so it was actually, you know, to go along with my animations. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I remember that was when I was five. And it was my father who showed me how to do that. My mom had the books. (laughs) (laughs) And um, then after studying classical piano and composing in a sort of a, mostly sort of a late romantic style. I went through this phase when I was not able to access a piano because we didn't have one in the home anymore. And that's when I started playing guitar. Just before we get there, Stanley, were your parents musical as well? Everyone in my family has played, um, but I'm the only one that's really made a passion out of it. Dad had played trumpet, my mom played piano, my sister played clarinet. Oh, your own little family band. Well, not really. I mean, we never actually played together, <laughs> but the enthusiasm certainly was was shared. So when I was 11, that's when I started playing guitar. And it didn't take me long to realize that guitar was my favorite instrument. There's so much I could do with it. It's so personal and expressive. So after playing guitar for several years, I kind of cemented that part of my identity. But then I started to miss some of the possibilities of the piano. And I had access to a piano again. Yeah, as I progressed in school and I started playing piano again, I realized that there were things about the piano that I still wanted to be able to do. So I started to experiment with the guitar to try to bring some of the pianistic ideas to the guitar. Up until that point, had you just been playing guitar as most people would at the picking and strumming? Right, and also doing some um, finger style as well. Right, okay. Then when I started experimenting with the instrument to bring the pianistic approach, I tried three or four different approaches until I arrived at what I called the touch technique. I didn't know that there was Jimmy Webster back in the 50s who had the touch system, but I heard someone mention that word touch and it sounded right to me. I guess it was already in the air, but I hadn't heard of Jimmy Webster. Also, there were a couple of other people who were doing it before I was. Dave Bunker, late 50s, early 60s, he started doing it. Emmett Chapman created an instrument called the Chapman Stick. 
when I first saw a picture of the stick, I had already been using the technique for about a year and I realized instantly, oh, that's the same <laughs> technique that I'm using on guitar, but it's a specialized instrument for that technique. Then, of course, we have um, Eddie Van Halen. Van Halen certainly used the same physical technique, the tapping, but he mostly used it as a way where your two hands can work together to play a single musical part. What I was more interested in doing, for the most part, was using the hands independently so I could play multiple parts, you know, like, like a piano. You're basically using all your fingers to play multiple notes at once as you would do on a piano. Right. So on a single guitar, I can play multiple guitar parts with more independence than you can normally get on a guitar. And also, because I can play guitar with just one hand using this technique, I can have one hand on guitar and one hand on piano, or I could play two separate guitars, which gives me more strings and more of a tonal range because I can change the sound on the two different guitars. All right. What I love about it too is not only does it increase the sort of orchestral textures that you can get out of the guitar, but also it gives you a different sound. It's sort of a brilliant, sparkling delicate sound that I just absolutely love. I've been listening to some of your music uh, from the Magic Touch album. It does have a beautiful warmth about it, and yet it's, it's, it's different to what I was expecting to hear from a guitar. Yes, it is different, and there's, I, I have a theory about the physics of it. I don't know how deep you want to go into that part of it, but I think when you're tapping the string, you only have... Uh, a simpler, you only have one wave instead of two, and it's actually a simpler sound, and that simplicity gives you that sparkle. Yes. But it also is a challenge because if you're in a recording or mixing situation, sometimes weird artifacts and um, anomalies can happen. So I could play a note, and suddenly that note could just disappear because somebody else plays a note and it gets sucked into their note. Oh, Whereas right. if you play the guitar with a conventional approach, because of the phasing of the two different waves, it's less likely for that kind of thing to happen. So it's tricky. It's sort of once you start on this, you sort of you sort of go down a rabbit hole because you try to compensate for one thing and then you create something else and then you try to compensate for that. So getting it right and really dialing it in when all the particulars are, are just right it's it's heavenly, but then when you fall down from heaven, it can be a little frustrating. <laughs> the technique itself, you, you, you're calling it a touch technique. Does that mean you actually tap the strings or do you push them? How does the sound, cause obviously when you strum, you're flicking the, the string, but if you're touching, how does the, is it the, the, the touch that makes the sound or is it removing your finger off the string that makes the sound? It's the, the type of touch. In order to create a note, in a string, you have to do two things. You have to select the note, which changes the length of the string, right? Like if you yes. shorten the string, yep. it's going to be a higher note. So that's one thing. Then the other thing is you have to energize that string to actually start the vibration. Yes. So normally with a conventional guitar, your left hand selects the notes and your right hand energizes the strings by plucking or strumming. Yep. But when you're tapping, imagine just doing this with just your left hand. You 
tap the string down against the neck. And when it hits those metal frets, the impact creates the vibration. So you're selecting the note and energizing it when right. at the same time with one movement. And so that's how I'm able to play with just one hand. So I use that same technique with my left hand and my right hand doing independent things. Which is how you can get multiple notes all sounding at once as you would on a piano. Right. It can be a little tricky because I can't play more than one note on a string. So I've got more fingers than strings. And so I have to really think about how to allocate the strings. And sometimes it gets a, a little tricky, which is one of the reasons why I like playing two guitars because I don't have to think about that. Each hand gets its own guitar. For my Australia tour, I'm going to be just bringing one guitar, but I'll also be including piano. And I would say for the last 20 years or so, I have been playing piano in all all my shows. So even though I'm mainly a guitarist, I do include piano. And, and And I love the piano still. It was my first instrument. And admittedly, I don't have as much training and knowledge because I focus on guitar. But in a way, I kind of like that because my approach to the piano is sort of more instinctive, sort of more just just sort of intuitive. And so I have the best of both worlds in, in a sense when I'm playing guitar and piano. Is the touch technique a technique that is easy to learn or to teach to others? It's not hard, but it's not particularly easy to. I mean, I think as far as guitar techniques go, conventional strumming is definitely a lot easier. The main issue is setting up the guitar correctly. It makes a big difference. And so when I'm working with people who are just starting, and I do teach, when the people are just starting, a lot of what we do is making sure that their guitar is set up well for the technique. And nowadays, you know, we have zoom and even though it's not the same as being there with the person i'm really pleased with how much we can still accomplish and i can usually tell pretty quickly once they start playing what needs to be adjusted on their guitar the other thing is that there are some exercises that one can do that make it a lot easier and i think that it's really important to to do those exercises well because you can strain your fingers oh. because you're banging your fingers against metal and over time that stress can, can turn to strain if you don't warm up properly. Also, the way that you hold the instrument, the way you position your body, those things can make a big difference. I almost had to quit because I was well on my way to getting tendonitis. And I consulted with a doctor who showed me what I was doing wrong in terms of the body mechanics And he pretty much saved my career. I mean, what I learned from Dr. Pascarelli, I pass on to all my students. And it's one of those things that, you know, it's a new approach to the instrument. So we don't have hundreds of years of, you know, history to fall back on. So we're figuring it out as as we go along. Now, you made a bold statement back in 1986, from what I read, with your Standards Volume 1 album, when you released what I understand to be an album that wasn't necessarily standard as most people would view the word, you actually released what were relatively popular songs with your definition of turning them into standards. Was that a challenging decision to make? It was a conscious decision that I made when I made the album. But before that, I had been doing that already without thinking about it because 
a lot of the guitarists I studied, they took music from their day. They took popular music and not just guitarists, you know, jazz musicians in general took popular music from their day and jazzed them up. That's that's jazz. <laughs> yeah, well, that's and right. so right. And so I just sort of did the same thing. You know, Art Tatum did like played I Can't Get Started. I played Stairway to Heaven. I, I really didn't see what why that was so different. But then when I became a professional musician and I started playing in New York and I started attracting the attention of sort of the musical establishment, I started getting some negative pushback for that. And some of the establishment, you know, critics wouldn't take me seriously because I was including these pop songs uh -huh. in my repertory. I said, you know what? These aren't some silly pop tunes. These are standards. These are my generation standards. And they may not mean much to you guys, but to me, these are standards. So I decided to dedicate that album to that idea. You know, nowadays, it's not such a big deal. And people play music from all sorts of periods, including the contemporary period. Um, they sort of brought that back. But I think that there was a, a period in jazz history when things started to become sort of formulaic. And so I was happy to be able to sort of put back on that and restore some of the freedom that was there to begin with. It sounds like that's uh, your philosophy, perhaps, on your music. Yeah, I mean, I don't like to break the rules just for the sake of breaking the rules. I mean, okay, well, maybe there's part of me that does actually <laughs> like to do that. But, but in general... I, I just want to do the best that I can do. And I do think it's important to learn the traditions. And I'm happy that I took time to learn traditions. But I also see that art evolves, music evolves. Mm. The only way that happens is because people start at some point doing something new. So I think, um, you know, there's a, there's a point where I think in, in the jazz world, Basically, what we do is we find our own sound. And we might sound similar to other people who've played before. That's very likely, but we don't have to imitate them. It's a good exercise to learn from what other musicians have done. But I think it's a good idea to, for everyone to sort of find what they do best, regardless of whether it sounds like other people. In an interview a couple of years ago, Stanley, you talked about the masculine and the feminine energy associated with jazz and the fact that at the time you'd seen so much masculine energy around. Is this something that you still see in the industry today or can you see a change? That's a really good question and I can't really speak to whether the industry in general is changing. It might be a little bit. I think if anything, it probably is changing just because the culture in general is opening up a little bit about gender attitudes, and I think that that reflects itself in music, you know? Yes. I mean, if you look at jazz, in the history of jazz, a lot of the venues where the music was performed were brothels and places where people were very free compared with conventional society, you know? Yeah. And then what happened is I think around the bebop era, a lot of the artists like Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, and then a little later, Miles Davis, really started to confront, in particular, I think, the racism that was 
rampant in, in America. A lot of these artists would, would perform and they were loved by the people in the audience, but they had to go in the back door. They weren't allowed to go in the front door of the venues where they were performing. And I think that what happened is that artists started to really push back against that. And I think at that time, the masculine energy was very important and very useful because it was a good way of sort of taking up, taking up arms against a system that was unfair. Then as time went by, that's kind of started to soften up a little bit. You know, like uh, if you look at the late 60s and early 70s and you look at some of the things that artists wore, like Jimi Hendrix, you could make the case that Jimmy style with a lot of the colors and the flowy outfits was, was a little bit femme. You know, a lot of rockers going into the 80s, a lot of male rockers were very femme. You, it's easy to think of examples, David Bowie, but even going back to Little Richard, you know, definitely the 60s and 70s, Miles himself and Herbie did a lot more sort of decorative dress in their in their way that they were dressed. And that was the era when I started. And so when I looked around, I saw people being really creative with their expression. So that was just sort of the world that I grew up in. And then when I became an adult, the world had reverted to this sort of neoconservatism around not just genre, yeah. but also gender and gender expression. And I found myself feeling a little bit out of place because I've always sort of channeled the masculine and feminine energies personally as well as in my music. Yes. And so after years of kind of grappling with that and sort of going along to get along to a degree, I finally just decided that I've had enough and I'm just going to be completely myself. So that's, <laughs> that's the phase that I'm in now. And that's a good place to be, Stanley. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, it's crazy. Like, like sometimes I'll see, you know, you have all the trolls on the Internet and I'll see someone complain about my hair or something as if, you know, like when, let's see, when did males um, win the right to have long hair? Let's see. I think that was like over 50 years ago, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Why do we have to fight these battles again? But I think history goes in cycles. And so, yes. you know, that's just the reality of what we're working with. <laughs> You're heading to Australia very, very shortly to play seven gigs, including the Jazz Lab here in Melbourne. What can we expect to see when you're up there on stage? I am so excited. It's my first tour of Australia. And I'm going to be, yeah, I'm going to be bringing my solo show, which I think is the best introduction. It's the most intimate. It's the best way, I think, to hear me first. Although I do have to say, some people, when they know that it's a solo show, they expect it to be really sort of subdued. And yeah, I play some ballads, but there's a lot of energy to the show. There's a lot of variety. It's definitely not your average solo show, for sure. <laughs> and I play a, a lot of my own compositions and other people's compositions. I draw from a wide variety of styles. No two shows are alike. And every song I play, there's a lot of improvisation. I'm in the moment. So I'll mix and match. I'll do mashups of different songs or I'll create a whole ending to the song supposed to be there and so there's a lot of creativity in the show and I really feed off the vibe of 
of the audience. So it's an event. It's a it's a happening. Right. And I am going to be playing guitar and piano keyboard as well. So there's going to be a lot to to listen to and watch. <laughs> yeah, certainly been having a look at some of your videos on YouTube, and you're quite right. The energy, even though it's on a video, the energy that you're putting into your program comes through. There was one there, a uh, piece of classical music, some Mozart. It was just beautiful. Oh, thank you. I'm going to be playing that one for sure. It's the slow movement of the piano concerto number 21. That's it, yeah. I play Mozart music when I was a child studying piano, and so his compositions and sort of his sensibility was deeply ingrained in me. One of the things I try to do, even when I'm playing a pure jazz piece, I try to tell a story that evolves over time instead of just sort of going from one riff to another. Yeah. That idea of what my teacher, Paul Lansky, called the sweep, like listening to that arc over time. This is one of the things I talk to my students about. I don't always like to go real deep into the theory side when I'm talking to a general audience, but I'll just say this, that you know how with a hologram, the way that a hologram is created is you've got these cells where each cell contains the entire image. Yes. And there's a way that when you put them together, you can create that image, but with a deeper sense of dimension. Yes. There's a musical analogy to that where every song is like a hologram because every moment of the song contains the entire song. And the way to experience that is what you do is you listen to where you are in the song and you listen to how the moment that you're hearing the sound that you're hearing right now you're hearing in context in the context of the entire piece and if you get what i'm saying then you can be in the moment and listening to that cell of the of the piece and at the same time you're also listening to the entire piece entire piece at once right and so that sense of form that's one of the greatest things that mozart excelled in and so when you, when, when you listen to his music and you listen to how he develops the theme and he does variations and then he develops the variations and it tells a story, but you never get lost because he's just so good at taking you on this epic journey, but always having a, a purpose to it. I try to imbue that even just in my pure jazz improvisations. So then when I'm actually playing a Mozart piece, then I have an opportunity to, to sort of, you know, piggyback on the form that, that he gives me, but then reach in and pull out things that I think are implied, like there's moments when I can take it into a blues or I can put in some jazz or some other things, but only because I find that Mozart's original notes can, can go there. I wouldn't do it just willy-nilly. It has to sort of relate naturally and organically to what Mozart gives me. Sounds like we're in for a, a treat, a magnificent journey. You're in Adelaide at the Gov on Thursday, August 4. On Friday, August 5 and Saturday, August 6, you've got four shows at the Jazz Lab here in Melbourne, in Brunswick. And on Sunday, August 7, you're up at the Sydney Guitar Festival at the Enmore Theatre in Newtown. Great opportunity to see you in action. Stanley, thank you so much for your time today to chat with me here on Bent Notes. It sounds like it's going to be a fantastic couple of shows. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you, David. My special guest on Bent Notes has been American guitarist Stanley Jordan. You're listening to Joy 94.9. 
Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.